than honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. The Lord will bring on you, on your people, and on your father's house such days as have never come since the day that Ephraim separated from Judah, the king of Assyria. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that you would give us understanding, that you would open our eyes to see the truth of your word and that by your spirit you would apply the truth of your word into our lives. And I pray, God, that you would open up our hearts to love your word and our very lives to be submissive to what you want to do and teach us from your word. And Lord, as we celebrate Christmas Sunday today and we look forward to the coming day of Christmas Day, we want to be mindful that Advent is all about you. It's about your coming and so, Lord, help us to truly rejoice in the wonderful truth of, uh, of your presence with us and your love for us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> when, uh, when we sat down to begin kind of looking through the Advent calendar uh, to select the passages that we would walk through during Advent as we've been highlighting our, our time through Advent in Isaiah And I've got to be honest, when we looked at Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 through 17, I thought this is going to be a great passage. And then the more I got to studying it, I I realized this really isn't uh, uh, the the typical Christmas message that we might be used to hearing. Uh, The the tone of the prophecy is not really like the typical uh, Christmas message that we we would be used to hearing. Uh, In fact, the tone of the prophecy is that of condemnation on King Ahaz. Ahaz is, is presented with a challenge before God, and that challenge is to trust in the Lord. It's to, uh, to, to forsake any alliance that he might be pursuing with a foreign nation, the, the nation of Assyria, and it's to trust in God. Isaiah approaches King Ahaz with this word of, of condemnation, challenging him to trust in God's provision and, and in God's protection. So this morning, I hope that, that what we can learn from this passage is that we will see this, this root of unbelief for King Ahaz, perhaps where it stems from, and, and we'll see the consequences of his unbelief. But then I, I, I want us to end with, with seeing the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in Emmanuel and tracing that out into the New Testament and seeing the implications of what Emmanuel, God with us, means for us today as the church, as the people of God. And so I, I, I want to begin with, uh, with the, the first point, the battle between faith and fear. The battle between faith and fear. Because that's really where Ahaz is at. King Ahaz is really struggling. He's, he's, he's in this inter, inner battle, this turmoil within, between faith in God and fear. In fact, a quick, quick, uh, a quick survey of chapter 7, verses 1 through 9 shows us that. And, and you know, I, I think where Ahaz is, I, I think we can all identify. I think we have had times in our life where we've been fearful of what was to come. Maybe it's fearful of the next step that we are going to take. Maybe it's fearful of, of even a, a prognosis that we've, uh, that we've received of, uh, of cancer or our loved one has received. Fear of the unknown, fear of what might happen, fear of what might lie ahead. And we, we begin to realize in all of this, in the midst of fear, we realize that we really, we really don't have any control over what's coming. 
And when we look into God's word, we we see that there's this beckoning from Christ, this beckoning from God that we would place our trust in him, that we wouldn't focus on these on this fear and these things that would tend to paralyze us, but that we would focus on on Christ and focus on his sovereignty, focus on his direction and his will and following and pursuing him. Well, King Ahaz was at a place of difficulty. He was at a difficult juncture. In verse 1 it says, In in the days of Ahaz, chapter 7, verse 1, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, uh, that Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, they went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but they couldn't conquer it. In verse 2, it says, When it was reported to the house of David, that's to Ahaz, he was of the Davidic kingdom, uh, or the Davidic line, when it was reported to him that the Arameans have camped in Ephraim, it says, His heart and the hearts of the people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. Now, that's a pretty serious picture. There's great fear within their hearts. Their hearts are shaking as the trees in the forest shake with the wind. That is, fear had literally gripped their hearts and they were at a point, King Ahaz was at a point of not knowing what to do. One man said, we fear men so much because we fear God so little. In fact, that's what was going on for King Ahaz. He was fearing God so little that his fear of man had grown so great. John Oswald, in his commentary, says this, Unless Ahaz puts his faith in God and what God has said through his prophet, then he'll have to give way to fear. But if he'll firmly believe in God, then he can stand in quiet confidence, no matter how desperate the immediate circumstances may appear. Now, the prophet Isaiah was called by God to speak the word of God. In fact, the name Isaiah means the Lord will save or the Lord is salvation. And this is exactly the message that Isaiah has been called to proclaim to the people of Israel, to the kingdom of Judah, to Ahaz and to those who are fearing. So the call of verses 10 through 12 for King Ahaz then is to place his faith and his trust in God in the midst of the mounting opposition People camped out, army, uh, armies camped out outside of, his, outside of his walls waiting to take his city. And Isaiah comes and says, place your faith and trust in the Lord. And so he's got this mounting opposition. And the real struggle for Ahaz is whether or not he's going to relinquish his fear and place his faith and his trust in the Lord. I want you to notice something about the call to faith. In verse 10, it says, then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz. This is incredibly encouraging to me. The Lord comes and the Lord speaks to Ahaz. He speaks directly to Ahaz. In other words, the Lord communicates directly with humanity. He communicates through the prophet Isaiah. In fact, it says the Lord spoke again to King Ahaz. Well, what was it that the Lord told King Ahaz the first time that he's coming and speaking to him again? Well, if we look back up again in verses 1 through 9 and in verse 4, we see what the Lord spoke to Ahaz the first time. Look at what he said in response to this fear that was shaking their hearts in verse 4. Take care, 
and be calm. Have no fear and do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands. He says, don't worry about those things which you're looking at and are fearful. Instead, he's saying, take care. Don't be faint-hearted. Trust in me. Be calm. Have no fear. Verse 7 continues. Here's why. Because the Lord says, it shall not come to pass. It will not stand, nor will it come to pass that they will take over and invade Judah. But verse 9 really is kind of the clincher in it all, because in verse 9 it says, if you will not believe, you surely will not last. And so Ahaz is really at a, at a, a juncture. If he's going to believe, then, then, then there will be blessing from the Lord. If he's going to trust and walk in faith and relinquish fear, trusting God, then he's going to be able to walk by faith and enjoy the blessings of God. But if he doesn't, then he will suffer the consequences. And so it's encouraging to me that we see here that God makes himself known to his people. He makes himself known to Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah. But not only does God make himself known to Ahaz, I think it's important for us to see conversely that God can be known by his people. That's incredibly important for you and I, especially as we celebrate Advent season. But just in life, it's incredibly important that we know that God can be known by his people. And God wants to be known by his people. He desires to be the object of our faith. Look at verse 11. Ask for a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. He calls the Lord your God. Isaiah says, ask for a sign from the Lord your God. In other words, there's no limit to what Ahaz is being offered here to ask. Ask, make it as high as heaven or or as deep as Sheol. Ask God to move the heavens and the earth. But Ahaz responds in verse 12. And he says, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord in verse 12. And Ahaz's response Initially, we might look at his response and, and we might would, would even balk at, at asking God to give us a sign. But in, in this case, Ahaz responds in a way that suggests that this would be a sinful thing to do, to ask God to give him a sign. To, it would be a sinful thing to test God. But you see, the testing of God that is sinful is when we say to God, I will not believe unless God proves himself worthy of my belief. And that's not what's happening here. In fact, Isaiah, God through Isaiah is offering for Ahaz to ask to ask for a sign. Why? God's calling out to Ahaz saying, I'll I'll show you my faithfulness if you will believe, if you will trust in me. And so in this exchange between God and Ahaz, we see that God is reaching out to Ahaz, desiring to show himself strong on behalf of his people, on behalf of Ahaz as the leader. Ahaz's response, though, is really a a pious response. It's a response that's really couched in just a facade. Because what's happening internally doesn't match what he says externally. It's really a sham and an excuse for not trusting in God and, and thinking that he knows better than God. I think sometimes we... We do this. We 
maybe not as blatantly as Ahaz, but we would respond or tell God that we know better about what we ought to be doing with our life. We know better about what decisions we make with our finances, right? We know better about what decisions we make in, in big purchases, or, or we know better about what decisions we make in, uh, in, in, in the direction of our career, or we know better about what decisions we make with regard to our family, and so on and so forth. And, and instead of consulting God, we allow the, maybe the fear or the doubt or the anxiety to well up within, and then we seek counsel from everyone else except from God. And this is, this, this is the incredible thing about Emmanuel, God with us. God can be known and he desires to be known by his people. And he desires to be the object of our faith. And here Ahaz just gives this pious response that really masks the wicked heart within. And instead of placing his faith and trust in God, he bows to fear and he listens to the unwise counsel of all those who were around him in the king's court. He places his faith and trust in a foreign nation, the nation of Assyria. And he forms an alliance with the nation of Assyria. And eventually what happens? Assyria overruns Judah. And consequently, after King Ahaz... All that's left of the Davidic dynasty are puppet kings who are ruled by foreign nations and controlling the puppet kings of Judah. So verse 12 tells us that Ahaz rejects God. And it really marks a turning point for the nation of Judah. And so the question that I, I want us maybe to consider for a moment is, what do we know about Ahaz's faith? What is it? What does Scripture tell us about this King Ahaz that he would react or respond in this way to God's offer of trust and God's offer of of blessing and security and provision? What would cause Ahaz to respond in such a way where he bows to fear and doesn't follow God in faith? Well, in First Chronicles chapter, Second uh, Chronicles rather, chapter two twenty eight verse one, it reads this. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he didn't do right in the sight of the Lord, as David his father had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He also made, listen, molten images for the Baals, or the idols. Moreover, he burned incense in the valley of Ben-Hanom, and he burned uh, his sons in fire. He made his sons walk through fire to the false god, Molech, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel, he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places and on the, the hills under every green tree. In other words, he had made his life about worshiping false gods, about being distracted and allowing his affections to be distracted by everything that came his way. He had forsaken a relationship with the one true God, and he had placed his trust and faith and hope in the gods of the nations. And because he did that, fear began to well up within him. He didn't have God's eyes to see the things that were coming his way. He didn't have God's eyes and he didn't have God's wisdom to see and to know how to respond in the face of all the difficulties that would come. Why? Because he had allowed his faith to just grow cold. He had forsaken 
his relationship with the one true God in pursuit of all these false gods. Ahaz was a wicked man who rejected God for his own pleasures. He was a man driven by fear and not by faith. I want to ask us to just maybe look internally for a moment this morning and answer this question. Is there something in our lives causing great fear? Is there something in your life this morning causing great fear as we approach this Christmas season or this Advent season? Is there something in your life that has taken the place of your faith and and your faith has grown cold and, and fear has begun to replace your faith? Believer, I want to challenge you and encourage you this morning. Stand firm in your faith. Don't allow fear to crouch in. Remain faithful to God and trust in God. Never ceases to amaze me at those times we begin to fall away or, or maybe walk away from the Lord where fear begins to creep in. Why? Because we know, we know that, that we're not walking in obedience to God. And we also know that when we walk in obedience to God, we have fellowship with the Lord like no other. We know that when we walk in obedience to God, we can trust Him. We know that, that we're, we're following His lead. We know that we're going to be right in the middle of where God desires us to be, centered in His will. Ahaz, this wasn't the case for him. He had grown cold and distant from God. Maybe it's worry, maybe it's finances, maybe it's anxiety, maybe it's fear over things that we can't control. Maybe it's the difficulty of that hard diagnosis, as I said earlier, or the loss of a loved one. Maybe it's not being accepted by peers. Maybe it's fear of unknown for what comes next in the next stage of life. Uh, Whatever it is, the call for the believer is to relinquish fear and trust in God. 1 John 4.18 says there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who is made perfect in love, the one who fears is not made perfect in love. I want to ask us a second question then. What does it mean to trust God? As Ahaz is being invited to trust God, what does it mean for you and me to trust in God? What does that look like? I think we have some great examples in in Scripture of what it looks like to stand firm and to trust in God. Namely, in Galatians 5.1, it says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Listen, therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Don't walk in bondage of sin and slavery. Instead, walk in the freedom that comes from knowing Christ and being united with Christ. From, from pursuing a, 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 a righteous relationship with Him. And guarding our hearts and our minds and our eyes. Guarding our lips. Seeing the fruit of the Spirit manifested through our lives. Stand firm in our faith. Ephesians 6, 10 through through 18. I won't walk through the whole passage there, but you know the passage. It's familiar. It's the, uh, the passage that Paul speaks about the armor of God. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Right? Because our struggle is not against what? Flesh and blood, but it's against principalities of spirit and and darkness. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist the evil in, in the day. 
And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm then, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and put on the breastplate of righteousness. And in verse 18, with all prayer and petition at all times in the spirit and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. How do we stand firm in our faith? By wearing the armor of God, the shield of faith, being our feet shod with the, uh, the shoes of the gospel, the sword of the spirit, right? The breastplate of righteousness. How do we stand firm in our faith? Well, listen to what Peter says, 1 Peter 5, 8. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him. Stand firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. You see? Listen, believer, when fears assail and they come against you in your life, God's word is clear. We are not to doubt God's hand. We're to trust by faith and walk with him. We're to stand firm, relying on the promise of Scripture. It doesn't mean we'll always feel great, but we're to be firm, stand firm in this, knowing that, that God is sovereign, knowing that he is the one in control of all things. And it's because of Emmanuel, God with us, that we need not fear anything. The truth is this, the battle between faith and fear is one are lost based on the one in whom we place our trust. I'll say that one more time. The battle between faith and fear is one or lost based on the one in whom we place our trust. You see, when Christ is the object of our faith, we have nothing to fear. But when everything else is the object of our faith, we have everything to fear. Second point I want us to see from this passage this morning is that fear is the antithesis of faith. Fear is the antithesis of faith. It's the opposite of faith. Fear reveals several things in the life of a, a believer, in the life of a person. First, see that fear surfaces from a lack of faith. Fear surfaces from a lack of faith. Why? Because it doubts the sovereign hand of God and it undermines our trust in his goodness and in his plan for our lives. When fear is, is welling up and being manifested in my life, it means that I am doubting and I'm not trusting in his goodness and in his sovereign hand. It means that I don't think God is big enough to handle the circumstances and the situations in my life when fear and doubts come. I'm reminded of that classic passage in Romans chapter 8 verses 31 through 39 what then shall we say to these things if God is for us who will be against us right it's this passage where God is calling us to to trust in him and know that he is sovereign he is secure he has all things held together and that in him we can trust and we can put our hope and we can put our faith because we know that nothing will separate us from the love of Christ, which is or the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Not tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. Nothing, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a promise that the believer can hold on to 
But secondly, fear, fear doubts God's wisdom. Fear doubts God's wisdom. And it leads us to a dry and dreadful place that has disastrous consequences. This is what happens for King Ahaz. He doubts the wisdom of God and he doubts the the provision of God. In fact, in verse 13, it says, Isaiah responds to him after he gives this pious response to the Lord's invitation. Isaiah responds, he said, listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? When we doubt God, when we reject God, it wearies the patience of God. Ahaz suffers the consequences of unbelief and and the consequences of rejecting God. We see it in verses 16 and 17. In fact, in verse 16, it said, The land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. In other words, what God is telling Isaiah, I mean, what God is telling Ahaz is that you've, you're fearing these two nations or these two lands that are trying to come against you, but in a few years, they're going to be forsaken. They're not even worth worrying about. And Again, it's a resounding call for them to trust, but instead, it, it's this dread that is the highlight of verse 16. The two kings you dread. It's this mortal terror and, and sickening fear that wells up within consequences of his fear and doubting of God's wisdom and lack of faith and trusting in God, it it ends the, the Davidic dynasty. The people will go into exile and devastation. And so their fear, his fear and doubting God's wisdom leads him to this dry and dreadful and disastrous place with disastrous consequences. I just want to challenge us this morning that it will do the same in our lives When we're not walking and trusting in the Lord, we open ourselves up to to fear and to discouragement and to doubt because there's certainty in walking with Christ and there's certainty in knowing Christ. Thirdly, we see that fear reveals a weakness, if not a complete lack of faith. Fear reveals a weakness, if not a complete lack of faith. And it proves I haven't truly entrusted my life completely to God. Notice the change in the pronoun from verse 11 where he says, Ask for a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. And then in verse 13 where he says, Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God? As well, Ahaz has completely rejected God. And in his rejection of God, Isaiah comes to him and says, Don't try the patience of my God. It's no longer your God because his complete lack of faith has proven that he has not entrusted his life, nor does he seek the counsel of the Lord. And so, what's really occurred in Ahaz's life is he is allowed these vain idols of the day, to interrupt his life and to steal his heart and his affections away from serving the Lord. So I want us us to consider the consequences of Ahaz's unbelief and rejection of God. And as we consider these consequences that were far-reaching and impacted the nation greatly, I, I want us to ask the simple question and consider 
the consequences of our unbelief, maybe our lack of trust, consider the consequences of our complacency in our relationship with God. Consider the consequences of our apathy in relationship with God. What, what about when it comes to, to my parenting? Does, does my apathy in relationship to God influence my children? You bet it does. Does my apathy as a, as a, 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 as a believer in Christ and, and, and not wanting to pursue the, the Scripture and pursue righteousness and pursue God's will, does that affect my home? You bet it does. Does that affect every area of my life? Absolutely. When we grow complacent in our, in our walk with Christ, it, it affects everything. We begin to take our focus and our eyes off of Christ, and we begin to focus, like Ahaz, on everything else. And we lose the true point of what God is calling us to, and that is to trust Him. We forsake God, and we trust other things. Believer, do you consider the effects of your spiritual apathy toward those who you work with and interact with? Husbands as spiritual leaders, wives as, as, as godly women wanting to submit to husbands as unto the Lord? I think one of the things we can walk away understanding here is that when there's fear, fear wrestles with disaster. But when there's faith, faith rests in security. Faith rests in security, knowing that God is in control, knowing that he is sovereign, knowing that he is Lord over all. Well, I mentioned I wanted us to end on a high note this morning, celebrating what Christmas is about, what Advent season is about. And certainly we see this challenge from Ahaz, King Ahaz's life, and, and we see the way that fear came and came in and, and kind of ruined his faith or his, his, his actually walking away from, from faith and serving other gods, gods allowed fear to come in. But I want us to end on this point in verses 14 and 15. And that is this, that true faith trusts in God's presence. True faith trusts in God's presence. That's, that's the point of, of this prophecy. Emmanuel, God with us, Right? Placing our faith and, and trust in God because he says he is present. He desires to be present in the lives of his people. He wants to be the object of our faith. He desires to be the object of our faith. He desires that we, in all of our affections, would be absolutely, 100%, completely devoted to him. And so in verses 14 and 15, it says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now, before we begin thinking that verse 14 is simply a prophecy only written to King Ahaz, I, I want you to see this in verse 14 when it says, The Lord himself will give you a sign. That you is, it's plural. It would be like saying the Lord himself will give y'all a sign. Speaking to the people of God. And so uh, that's a little bit technical in a moment. I'll share a little bit more about that which is technical in this passage, specifically in these two verses dealing with this prophecy of, 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 of the virgin child being born. 
But I want us to see first that faith removes fear. When we have faith in God, it it removes fear. And that's the promise of verse 14. Verse 14 offers us true hope that ought to cast away all fear. And based upon this passage in, in Isaiah chapter 7 and on verse 14, we have Luke writing in Luke one thirty five, where the angel answered and said to her, that is Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. You see, the faith in God is about trusting in His provision. It's about trusting in the promise that He has made. It's about trusting that He will, in fact, carry out that which He has said He will carry out. And so I don't want to dwell on the technical aspects of the passage, but if you would like to go and do a little bit more research and study on uh, on the words that are used here in verse 14 and uh, 15, but in verse 14 specifically, it would be an interesting word study for you to go and and look at. It has to do with this word for virgin. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. The word for virgin used about 50 times throughout the Old Testament is Betula, and it's not the word that's used here. In fact, the word that's used here is a word called Alma, and it, it's only used a few times. It's, it's used nine times throughout the whole Old Testament, and seven times it's used in the context of speaking of, of a young woman who's mature in age for marriage but hasn't yet been married and, and hasn't conceived of a child. And it was just a given in the Hebrew culture that a woman who wasn't married but that was of age would be a, a virgin. And so in this technical aspect of the passage, there, there's really this kind of unresolved tension between the immediate context and the future promised. And this unresolvable, it's unresolvable because there's, there's not really a sensible answer to explain the presence of an unidentified child between verses 14 and, and 17 that he speaks of. And there have been a lot of theories that have been proposed, and I won't take the time to walk through all of those, but... One of the theories has been the double fulfillment prophecy where several have suggested and put forth uh, comments or or theories about um, how this prophecy was doubly fulfilled. And some say it would have been in Isaiah's first son, Shahir Jeshub, and some say it would have been in his second son, uh, Mahir Shalal Hashbaz, that we see in chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Some say it would be in Hezekiah that uh, that it was fulfilled, but... All of those really kind of have some problems and break down. But I think if we look at the context of the whole section from chapter 7 through 11, if you kind of go back and read it, you can see the the messianic overtones and and prophecy that he speaks about in chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, where he he highlights the, the, the Messiah coming. He says, there'll be no more gloom in chapter 9, verse 1, for her who is in anguish in earlier times. He treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. And of course, Matthew chapter four records this is where Christ came in Galilee. That's where he began his ministry when he came. And so we see the prophetic fulfillment. And and in Isaiah chapter 11, verses one through six, you kind of go back and and read that. 
But the point of the prophecy, the ultimate fulfillment that we see in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, hang with me here, the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy, we see it quoted in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, which John read a few moments ago in the beginning of our service, where it says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And so Matthew in the New Testament takes this prophecy that Isaiah speaks in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah, and he applies it to the one royal child, Christ, who has come, the Messiah who has come. And it is Jesus Christ who is the fulfillment of God's promises. And this is what Peter writes about in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, when he says, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The promise made that day, as we read here, to Ahaz, but also to the people of God, was God will give you a sign. And the sign is God's presence with us. We see that fulfilled in the person and the role of Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, as he comes and we celebrate his coming at birth in, in the manger this time of year. But there's great news beyond just the first advent. And that is that he is coming again. He will return. And in the meantime, between the first coming and the second coming, God's presence is still with us. He is still with his people. John chapter 14, verse 16 says, I will ask the father. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. He's about to ascend to heaven or he will soon be ascending to heaven. He says, I'll ask the father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot see because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. And then down in verse 23 of John 14, Jesus answered and said to them, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. Listen, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. You see, the hope of of Advent, the promise of Advent is when we trust in God and place faith in God, his presence is with us. He he doesn't leave us. God's presence is with us. And and because his presence is with us, because of Emmanuel, there is no fear in life or death, as we sang earlier Because of this truth, Emmanuel, God with us, we have no reason to doubt God. We have no reason to fear. For God's God's got us in his hand, and no one can snatch us out of the hand of God. They cannot pry the fingers open in God's hand and remove you. Nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ. Romans chapter 8. We can also rest in this truth, knowing that not only is there no fear in life or death, he has granted us the power to live for Christ. He has granted us the the, the power and the ability to pursue righteousness and live in full, complete joy. That's what Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 are about. That he has made a way and he has provided. It is God at work in you, both to will and to work according to his good 
pleasure. This is God at work accomplishing his purpose in and through you, believer. And so because of this, because of this gift, because of the advent, because of Emmanuel, God with us, we have power. We are empowered to live for Christ. One other implication is that there is a, there is inheritance for the believer that is sure and certain. You can trust in this, knowing that God is going to accomplish that which he said he is going to accomplish. And God's word is clear that for all those who, who have professed faith and, and trust in Christ, in Ephesians 1.13, he says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Listen, true joy, true joy is available for every child of God because of Christ's ministry for our reconciliation. But remember from last week, even true joy cannot be accomplished or cannot be had in the life of a believer if we are not walking in obedience to Christ's commands. The announcement of Advent is this, Emmanuel, God with us. The true reason to hope, the true reason to celebrate is because Christ has come and he has given us his presence and, and indwells the believer and we know that he is coming again. Now, this is truly one of the greatest captivating thoughts for me, that God desires to be with his people, that he delights in us, that he inhabits the praises of his people, and that he indwells us through the Holy Spirit's presence. This Advent season, may we truly celebrate the announcement of his coming. May we truly trust in his provision. May we not lack faith and Get sidetracked and let our eyes focus on all the other peripheral things. May we not fear those things, but may we trust in Christ and may we hope in his return. So I want to close this morning by asking you, believer, are you trusting in the Lord? Are you joyful over this announcement of, of Advent that he has come? Do you know that the presence of the Holy Spirit and the the joy and the intimate fellowship that comes from walking with him. If you don't know that this morning and you know Christ, then I want to urge you and encourage you to repent of sin, repent of what's holding you back, repent of that which is clouding your faith and relinquish those doubts and those fears to him. Come to him and confess that you need his strength to empower you, that you can't do it on your own because the reality is we can't. I want to close us this morning in prayer. And I want to challenge you this morning to reply to the Lord as he's leading you. Maybe it's to make a commitment. Maybe it's to make a time or have a time of confession before the Lord. Maybe it's to come and even kneel at the steps and just kind of consecrate your, uh, your time from here on out with the Lord and make some commitments. Whatever be the case this morning, I want to challenge you to respond as the Lord leads you. Let us pray. Father. We thank you for the hope of your word. We thank you, God, that we can trust in you. Help us, Lord, to learn from King Ahaz and 
the way that his heart was taken away from you and fear began to creep in. Lord, let us be your children who stand firm in faith, who are trusting in your sovereign hand and trusting in your prompting and your leading. And Lord, give us joy in the midst of our walking with you. Let us experience joy that uh, that is ever flowing and that overflows into others around us. Lord, let us not become complacent or apathetic. And if we are, I, I pray that you would strengthen your people to repent and to draw near to you. To consider the consequences of unbelief and consider the consequences of rejection. And so, Lord, now strengthen us as we celebrate your goodness and your love. We celebrate your presence. We thank you that you are with us, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?